0: presenting this month's special series, Focus on Allergy. Allergy season is in full swing. From asthma to food allergies, ReachMD is keeping you up to date with the latest in allergy medicine. Most parents support the immunization of their kids according to the recommended vaccine schedule for children and adolescents, although increasing numbers are choosing to forego this routine entirely or follow an alternative vaccine schedule. In some case, these latter decisions are undertaken at the urging of prominent physicians. How are these vaccine practices impacting the health of our young patients and more broadly, the health of the general public? You're listening to ReachMD Radio, a channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Immunology. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu, practicing general pediatrician and author. Our guest is Dr. Paul Offit chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases, and director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and a professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Offit.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Now, tell me, how many vaccines are children getting with the routine schedule?
1: So in the first few years of life, children will receive vaccines to prevent 14 different diseases, and then in adolescence, they receive an additional two vaccines, so it's a total of 16 vaccines.
0: And this adds up to as many as how many injections over the course of time and about how many maximum at one time, would you say?
1: So you can, in the first few years of life, get as many as 26 inoculations and as many as five injections at one time.
0: Okay. And so what is an alternative vaccine schedule?
1: An alternative vaccine schedule is is a vaccine schedule that is anything other than that recommended by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the American Academy of Pediatrics. It can include a variety of ways to delay, separate, or withhold vaccines.
0: And why are parents and some physicians interested in having an alternative vaccine schedule right now?
1: Because of ill-founded fears about vaccine safety. I mean, I think that probably the the biggest concerns are that that, uh, children are simply receiving too many vaccines too early, which causes their young immune systems to be overwhelmed or they feel that, that by giving two aluminum-containing vaccines or more at the same time, that that would put them at risk for aluminum toxicity. But there's abundant science that refutes both of those concerns.
0: Have there been any studies comparing patients who have been on an alternate schedule versus patients who have had no vaccines whatsoever versus those on the regular schedule?
1: No. First of all, you could you could almost never do that study retrospectively because in order to see whether or not there's any difference. I mean, if you're, for example, interested to see whether or not there's any difference in the instance of autism among the three groups that you just mentioned, you'd have to control for healthcare-seeking behavior to make sure that the the three groups you just talked about are exactly identical in terms of everything but receipt of vaccines. That would be a very hard study to do because those who, for example, choose not to get vaccines or choose to have alternative schedules sometimes are, are not comparable to groups who are fully immunized. You could certainly not do that study prospectively. I mean, although it is a parent's right in this country to choose not to get a vaccine and to, in some cases, watch their child suffer or be hospitalized or die from a vaccine-preventable disease, it's not an investigator's choice or ability to do that. Uh, you can't ethically follow a child prospectively who's unimmunized and then potentially watch them get invasive influenza type B disease or pneumococcal disease. You just can't conscience that. It's, it really, frankly, is reminiscent of something like the Tuskegee experiment, where you knowingly withheld a therapy that could be beneficial.
0: You mentioned that it's a parent's right to choose whether or not their child gets vaccines. Can you talk a little bit about the different medical, religious, and philosophical exemptions that exist within the state mandate laws?
1: Sure. Interestingly, there is not a constitutional right to choose not to get vaccinated. That was tested in in Jacobson v. Massachusetts in 1905. But subsequently, there have been a number of rulings basically that said that the state may allow religious exemptions or philosophical exemptions. So it sort of went back to the states. And now 48 states have religious exemptions. Only two states don't have religious exemptions. And then there are now 21 states that have what are called philosophical or personal belief exemptions.
0: Let's kind of switch gears a little bit. One concern I've heard from parents and, and even people who celebrities who are prominent in the media is that the childhood diseases that scared us so long ago are not so bad these days. And things like rotavirus does not kill our children in the United States where we have IV fluids and that type of technology. What is your response to
1: that? It's not true. I mean, if you look, for example, at rotavirus pre-vaccine, the vaccine was the most recent vaccines were introduced into this country in February of 2006. That disease caused between 55 and 70,000 children to be hospitalized every year, and it caused about 60 children to die every year because despite the fact that our medical access is generally good and our, our health care, I think, it, once in hospital is excellent, that disease can be so rapidly dehydrating that a child can, can become dehydrated and die even before they get to medical care. So that's simply not true. Vaccines are a victim of their own success. I think you said it right, exactly right, that you know, we don't see vaccine-preventable diseases much today because we use vaccines. And so I think young parents today not only don't see these diseases, either they didn't grow up with them. So for them, vaccination becomes a matter of faith, you know, faith in pharmaceutical companies, faith in, in public health officials, faith in, in the medical profession. And I think there's certainly been an erosion in that kind of faith.
0: Another argument I've heard is parents will say, well, give my child the measles. I'd rather that he get measles than get autism, which they fully believe is linked to the MMR shot. What do you say about that?
1: It really isn't what I say, it's what the data show that you know the, the there was a hypothesis raised by a British gastroenterologist in 1998 that the combination of measles mumps rubella vaccine caused autism. He never studied that. He simply had a case series of children, eight children who received the vaccine and then soon after had developed symptoms that were consistent with autism. And so he ra- at best one can say he raised the hypothesis. Well, the way to test that hypothesis is to do large-scale epidemiological studies in- involving hundreds of thousands of children who did or didn't receive receive the MMR vaccine, and and what you find is that the the incidence of of autism is no greater in the vaccinated group. I mean, again and again and again, that study's been done. It's just remarkable to me how we've been unable to communicate that science to the public, that there are still people in the public who believe this to to be true is remarkable. The the second point, though, that you allude to is that that people can say, I would prefer to have measles. Uh, it tells me that they've never seen measles. I mean, it, it tells you how, how remarkably effective our vaccine program has been. Measles makes you sick. I mean, prior to the measles vaccine coming to the United States in 1963, you know, we had probably 100,000 children who were hospitalized with measles, mostly with severe di- dehydration, but also with severe measles, pneumonia, or encephalitis. And we would have more than between 500 and 1,000 children who, who would die from measles. I mean, measles was a, was a one devastating infection and, and highly contagious. The good news is, is that's not the choice. The choice is not, you know, I won't do should I get measles or autism? You don't have to make that choice. A choice to not to get a measles-containing vaccine is not a choice to lessen one's risk of autism. It, it's simply a choice to increase one's risk of getting measles, a disease which can kill you.
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Shu. Our guest is Dr. Paul Offit. Chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases and director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and a professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. We're discussing alternative vaccine schedules for children. The chickenpox vaccine is one that has been added relatively recently, and some parents will argue that they would rather that their child get natural immunity from being exposed to chickenpox and have the disease than vaccine immunity. Is it true that natural immunity is better than vaccine immunity?
1: Yes, the natural immunity is better in the sense that it generally is higher titered, meaning you have a high, larger quantities of antibodies in your bloodstream than if you if you were vaccinated, and it 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 might be in fact longer lasting. But the fact remains that if you look at for example, the measles vaccine, the measles vaccine introduced in this country in 1963, essentially eliminated measles from our country. So, you know, vaccine immunity was high-titered enough and long-lived enough to essentially eliminate the virus. Same thing with rubella vaccine, same thing with smallpox vaccine. And Both those vaccines essentially eliminated those diseases from, the, from this country. There is no doubt that if we stick to giving the, varice- the varicella or chickenpox vaccine, the same thing will happen here, because remember, when you choose a natural and natural, Infection and certainly the word "natural" is a very attractive word. It sounds good, but it's not. I mean, there's nothing good about natural infections. And in the case of of chickenpox, every year between 70 to 100 people died of chickenpox. Most of those people were previously healthy, and chickenpox sets up for severe infections, such as those with group A beta-hemolytic strep, so-called flesh-eating bacteria. It's a devastating illness. We've seen a few children in this hospital who had so-called reactivation of varicella that manifested as strokes you don't want wild-type varicella virus living latently in your central nervous system. If you, you're given the choice, and now you are given the choice, you'd much rather have an attenuated strain, meaning the vaccine living latently in your nervous system. I mean, when my son was, was four years old is actually when the vaccine came out in 1995, and I couldn't wait to get him the vaccine. There were, at the time, chickenpox outbreaks in his school, and, and the question is, which virus did I want living latently in his nervous system, wild-type virus or attenuated virus? Obviously attenuated, because that way he's much less likely to get shingles, or when he gets shingles, it will be a much more, more mild case. So, there's, there's all kinds of advantages to having, uh, being exposed to the attenuated virus and all kinds of disadvantages to being exposed to wild type virus. The, fa- the notion that, that parents take children to chickenpox parties is it, just remarkable to me because chickenpox can kill you.
0: Now, you brought up an important point about you're making a decision for your son to get the chickenpox vaccine when it was available. What about pediatricians and other physicians who are promoting alternative vaccine schedules or who don't immunize their own children? children, aren't we as a medical community then sending a mixed message to our patients?
1: Well, I, th- I think that's a very, very small group of physicians. I mean, certainly you'll, you know you see prominent or you, you'll hear quoted people like you know Bob Sears or Jay Gordon. I mean, there, there are or even Bernardine Healy, arguably, you know, physicians who now move more towards this notion of either an alternative schedule or not giving vaccines. That's a, that certainly the media pays a great deal of attention to these people. But I mean, uh, if you look at sort of the 99 percent of physicians out there, they promote vaccines, and they give vaccines to their children because they know that those vaccines can keep their children out of the hospital and can potentially save their life. And certainly, this is not sort of a theoretical thing anymore. Another way to say an alternative vaccine schedule is to say an untested vaccine schedule. You know, the schedules that we currently have are very well tested to show that when you add a new vaccine to the existing schedule, that that you don't affect the safety or immunogenicity of those vaccines given at the same time and vice versa. When you choose your own schedule, you know, you're making it up. And, and what's worse, and I think this is the worst part of it, is that you're increasing the period of time during which a child is susceptible to vaccine-preventable diseases. We had a measles epidemic last year that was bigger than anything we've seen in more than a decade. We have now have outbreaks of Hib, I mean, haemophilus influenza type B meningitis in Minnesota. We have, have an outbreak of six cases, including three deaths in Philadelphia. There are cases in Maine, cases in New York State, cases in Oklahoma. I mean, I'm, I think we've reached a tipping point here as to what happens when you choose to delay, withhold, separate, or give vaccines. Do
0: you know if parents have changed their practices on alternative vaccine schedules after knowing about these measles outbreaks and the Hib outbreak, or has this not made an impact at all?
1: I think it's starting to make some impact. I mean, I think, and I think this is implicit in your question, is I do think people are compelled by their fears. I think right now they are compelled by, frankly, the false notion that vaccines may be more harmful than helpful. Now you're starting to see measles outbreaks. It's getting some national media attention in the HIB. Certainly these HIB meningitis cases are starting to get more national attention. I think as people realize that if they they choose not to get a vaccine, that they put their child in a difficult position, an unsafe position, which is arguably their most important job as As a parent that maybe they're making the wrong decision. I do think that's starting to happen. I mean, you'd like to think it wouldn't come to this, that we have to watch children suffer and die from vaccine preventable diseases because their parents made the awful choice of not giving them a vaccine. It is actually remarkable to me. When you think about it, if you choose not to put your child in a car seat, a young child in a car seat, and, and, you know, a policeman sees you, that's actually an offense. I mean, that's a criminal offense. You're supposed to put your child in a car seat because you're supposed to keep your child safe. But you can choose not to give your child a hip vaccine, watch them suffer and die from, from that choice, and you're in no way culpable. It is remarkable to me that that's true.
0: To play devil's advocate, though, some parents would say, well, if the vaccines work so well, then my child not being immunized is not going to pose a threat to your child who is immunized. How would you counsel parents who believe that?
1: Well, all you have to do is, is look at a measles outbreak that occurred in the Netherlands in 19, between 1999 and 2000. It was about 4,000 cases of measles. And what they found was that you're actually much better off being a completely unvaccinated person living in a highly vaccinated community than being a completely vaccinated person living in a relatively unvaccinated community, which is to say that once you have enough people who aren't immunized, you know, the herd immunity breaks down. That's essentially what happened in San Diego with last year's measles outbreak. You saw measles come into this country from from Switzerland, which is, is not at all uncommon. Measles walks into this country every year. What was new about last year's outbreak was it went from American child to American child to American child, all of whom were unimmunized. And so the choice not to vaccinate is a choice to lessen herd immunity and to, to thus put everyone at risk. And there are some people in this country, many actually, who can't be vaccinated, can't be vaccinated because they're getting chemotherapy for their cancer or they're getting steroids for their asthma or they're getting you know, immunosuppressive agents for their bone marrow transplants. They count on, on living in the herd. They count on the herd to protect them. And, and clearly that herd immunity, as witnessed by these HIB uh, outbreaks, is breaking down.
0: I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Paul Offit. We've been discussing alternative vaccine schedules for children. I'm Dr. Jennifer Shu. You've been listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Allergy. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at reachmd.com.